0: Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to visit southernhillslv.com to watch or listen to past messages. We hope you enjoy today's message from God's Word. And today's sermon is entitled, What Makes Jesus So Special? What Makes Jesus So Special? Luke chapter 2, verses one and following, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, taxed. It was a census, and that's what verse 2 tells us. The census first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, every one to their own city. And Joseph, Joseph also went up from Galilee unto the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Let us pray. Father in heaven, my prayer is over the next few moments, you would give us clarity of thought and direction of focus. I pray that our minds and our hearts would be calmed from the craziness of this life and we would draw our attention solely and completely to you. I pray that you would come into this place, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. And I pray that you would remind us of your great love and your availability to all those who want you. Break our hearts, Father. Break our direction and our focus so that once again we can see you. Help me, God, as I help these folks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what makes Jesus so special? It's a good question because we're about to celebrate his birthday in just a few days. And you only really, speci- you only really celebrate the birthdays of those who are the most special to you, those who are closest to you. My, my daughter, just this last week, we celebrated her 13th birthday. 13 years old. My youngest child, Scarlett, is 13 years old. I have all teenagers now. I'm getting old, folks. Yeah, that's right. And at this point, 13 and almost 16 and 18 years old, and we celebrate her birthday, she only had a few friends there because you really just celebrate with those that are closest to you. But think about Jesus now. Jesus, we're about to all celebrate his birth. Even those who would not say that they're believers in Jesus Christ are caught up in the cultural uh, melee of Christmas. They're caught up in this, this movement, this wave of Christmas spirit, and they themselves will be talking about Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ, the advent of the Messiah. Not only will we in the city be celebrating Christmas, but the entire nation will be celebrating Christmas. Christmas will be celebrated around the world. Christmas will be celebrated and has been celebrated by people for over 2,000 years. Why in the world do we celebrate the birth of this one person? What makes him so special? In reality, not only do we celebrate his birth annually... We celebrate his birth by the way we even divide time. It's 2022. What happened some 2,000 years ago that has divided all of world history into two major parts? Before and after. What is it other than the birth of Jesus Christ himself? So this is where we find ourselves, celebrating this man's birth. This is where we find ourselves, an individual who so radically shifted the fundamental history of mankind that today there are billions of people who not only know his name but celebrate his birth. What makes him so special? And I propose to you that there are three words from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 that really summarize why Jesus is so special. I'm going to give all three of the words to you now, then we're going to come back and look at them after I read through the text. If you're ready for the three words, say amen. Amen. All right, what are these three words? Here they are. Remember what they are. Maybe write them down. Here they are. Accessible, relatable, Emmanuel. Can you say those with me? Accessible, relatable, Emmanuel. Say it again. Say it again. Accessible, relatable, Emmanuel. Let's talk about these three words after we study the text. If you have a Bible, go ahead and look at it. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and following. It begins by saying, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. A decree. A very important mandate from a very important person. This is Caesar Augustus. When I say Caesar Augustus, go, so, Ooh. I'm going to say, it. You ready? Caesar Augustus. And you should be impressed is a very important man who makes very important mandates to make everybody move around and be controlled in any way that he wants them to be controlled. And the way he's gonna control them now is by developing a census. He wants to know where everybody lives and what everybody is doing. Because the more the government knows about where you are and what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, the more they know about you, the more they can help you. This is the goal of the government. And this is the goal of, uh, of Caesar Augustus. He cares so much about the farmers and the fishermen of Galilee. He wants to make sure he can help them appropriately by making sure they all know where they're from. It's a census to register everyone, to appropriately tax them, to make sure that he can provide all for their needs. And that's what's going on during this time. And it came to pass in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. What an important man. His name was not actually Caesar. <laughs> that was his title. And his name actually wasn't Augustus. His name was Octavius. Uh, Octavius was just a 19 year old kid when his adopted father was stabbed to death. Have you heard of his dad? His, his adopted father's name was Julius Caesar. He was the one who invited the uh, orange Julius that you find at the mall. That's why he's famous. Either that or the Caesar salad, I always, I'm not sure. But Julius Caesar was not originally an emperor. He really wasn't a dictator. In fact, he was referred to as the first citizen of Rome. He was an important politician in Rome, but he was also a very, very manipulative man who actually helped change the Republic of Rome into the empire that it would become. You see, Rome was at one point a republic, and a republic in which had representatives from each region that would arrive. Rome was not always an empire with an emperor. And if there's one thing we learn from Star Wars, an emperor doesn't always work for everybody, you understand. But Julius Caesar had got to a point where he politically placed himself where he became the first dictator of Rome. It did not work out too well for him because some of his political opponents, some who pretended to be his friends, even got to the point where they assassinated Julius Caesar. And it was Octavian at the age of 18, 19 years old that he found out about this. Octavian did not immediately become a ruler in Rome, but in fact, he spent the next 20 years of his life moving himself politically in such a position that eventually he would be named the very first emperor of Rome. Little Octavia, the very first emperor of Rome. And do you know what the first thing he did whenever he became the emperor? You'll love this. He changed his name from Octavius... To Augustus. Why? Why did he change his name? Well, Octavius is a good name. It means, anybody know? It means eight. <laughs> if your name was eight, would you not want to change your name as well? Like, you, your parents are, you, you have a child, you're like, what do you name him? I don't know. This is our eighth kid. Name him eight. I don't know. He's, <laughs> It's fine. We really don't care at this point. There's a lot of them. So just name them Eight. His name was Eighth. So when he became emperor, he changed his name to Augustus. Augustus meaning noble. Augustus meaning impressive. Augustus meaning majestic. I want everyone from now on not to call me Eight. I want you to call me your mother. name. He's such an important man, and and the only reason we're talking about this very deeply important man is because he happened to be in charge when a kid was born in a barn in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus, in the grand scheme of world history, was a nobody, but he made a decree. A big mandate, everybody move around. Little did he know he was only making this decision based upon God's foreordained plan to get Joseph and Mary in a little town called Bethlehem so the true king of kings and lord of lords could be born. Now, look, it goes on. And all the world should be registered. This census was first taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, which was the empire to the north, verse 3. So all went to be registered. Everyone went to their own city, their own origin of their family, their own family origin place. That's Everybody had to go back to their home uh, where they came from. and uh, Does anybody here have a family of origin place? For example, if we were to have a, a census like this and they, the government made you go back to where your family is from, where would you have to go back to? Does anybody want tell me? Raise your hand and tell me. Where, where, where would you have to go back to? Yes. Where? where? California. California. Yeah. You escaped, didn't you? Yeah, here you are. Yeah, what about you? Yes. Puerto Rico, ooh, Puerto Rico. How many of you would like to visit Puerto Rico during the winter, right? That's not, is, it, is it warmer there? Yeah. It is. I want to go. All right, yes. Uh, Family of origin, another place. Yes, in the back. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. <laughs> I do not want to visit Massachusetts. I don't, not, not even a little bit, I don't think. This is where they had to go. So David, or excuse me, so uh, uh, Joseph and Mary had to travel from where they were living in Galilee. Now, Galilee, even to this day, is kind of um, kind of a rural area. It's kind of a farmland area where you've got shepherds, sure, but it's, it's more along the lines of great farms and vineyards and fishermen up in the Sea of Galilee. This is where he has arrived. This is where he has migrated. This is where his family lives now, but where his family used to live was down in Judea, which is the region, the city, or the town of Bethlehem, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So the Bible tells us, introduces us to this guy, Joseph. And Joseph is up in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth would be like saying, it, it would be like saying, okay, so Bethlehem was a, was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was an important place near a big city. It would be like saying Long Island, New York, right beside New York City. That's the idea. Nazareth would be like saying Pahrump. Understand? Like, somehow this guy from Long Island ended up in Pahrump and you're like, what happened there? You know what I mean? Like, that's what's going on. And so he says he's going up from this place to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now that's like saying, this is a big deal, as you're reading through this text, you, you see the name David and you're supposed to be startled. That'd be like saying this is the son or the great, 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 great grandson of George Washington. Except for this, it would be even more important because this was a monarchy, This was a kingship that would have been passed from lineage to lineage, from child to child, from father to son, all the way down. And so here is this true king who is hanging out in Pahrump, waiting for his moment that God is going to call him. And it says in verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. Mary was introduced to us in chapter 1. We already know about her. She is a sweet young girl who loves God and is ready to serve God in any way. And we find out that they're engaged to be married. They're not married. They're engaged. I'm going to ask, are they married? You say no. Are they married? No. No, they're engaged to be married. And because they were lovers of God, and because they were followers of God in a very religious community, they did not live together before they were married, and they did not have sexual intercourse with each other before they were married. She was a virgin, but they were engaged to be married, and then suddenly she was pregnant. This we call the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And in this religious community, I'm sure that she had suffered much ridicule and gossip due to this situation. So it was that while they were there in Jerusalem, in the suburb of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the Bible tells us that the days were accomplished and completed for her to be delivered. She was six, or excuse me, she was eight months, eight and a half months, nine months pregnant, and it was time for give birth when she arrived. And it says in verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's so much to discuss here. I- if you think of a hotel, I don't want you to think of this inn like you would a large Metropolitan hotel. Nor, nor do I want you to think of a holiday inn or even a roadside motel like Motel 6. I- instead, I want you to think more in terms of um, a, bre- bre- a bed and breakfast, Kind of a place where you would go where there were three or four rooms and a larger house. That's really the type of inns that were available during this time. There were no large hotels. And so as Mary and Joseph went around the city of Bethlehem, knocking on doors, asking if there was any availability in the modern day Airbnb, they found out nothing was available because everybody had come down there to be registered, taxed. The census was going on. One innkeeper, assumedly, it's at some point said, well, there's no room here, but you can stay inside of the the garage where we park our animals. Now, sometimes we get this idea that there was this barn, right, with hay coming out of the barn, and we think of a Western-style uh, barn, but really it looked a little bit more like this, this famous photograph from the movie Nativity, where you see that it would have been more of an outcropping or a cave outside of a bed bed and breakfast where people would have stowed their camels or their horses or even their donkeys as they rode from wherever they were. This is where they would have stayed, and so they would have had an opportunity. There's so much to talk about here, but instead I'm saving some of the most beautiful aspects of this verse for next Sunday. Next Sunday, Pastor Caleb is going to be really addressing the barn and really addressing the swaddling clothes and really addressing the shepherds. I cannot wait for you to hear that. That's next Sunday at 10 o'clock. But let's move on. So we move on quickly, verse 8. It says, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Mary just gave birth. I'm going to say, what happened to Mary? You say, give birth. Mary, what happened to Mary? She just gave birth. And what woman doesn't like company immediately after giving birth? (laughs) And so Joseph invites these shepherds into the barn. Uh, How many of you would like this, right? I can't imagine being at Southern Hills Hospital or at Summerlin or down at UMC and my wife just gave birth and the door knocked and there's a bunch of smelly shepherds. Hi, we're here to see you and your wife and your baby. And then to look at Mary and say, Hey, there are people here. How many of you would like to not have that conversation, right? Nonetheless, here they come in. And what does it say? It says they were in the same country, shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Why so many sheep? Like, what are these guys doing out there in the middle of the night? We say, wow, they're shepherds. There's always been shepherds around there. Yeah, but the, but the amount of shepherds and the amount of sheep during that time. It's really important to understand the religious significance of what was going on in that region during that time. You see, Judea was centered around one city, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not only the capital of the country, it was the religious center of all of Judaism. And Judaism was surrounded with... Special holidays, just like you have holidays, and I have holidays as well. One of the greatest holidays happened every spring. It was called Passover. And during Passover, they would do a ceremony that we no longer do. They would take a, a lamb, and they would sacrifice the lamb at the temple. Here's a photograph of what the, uh, an artist's rendering of what the, the temple would have looked like during that time. They would arrive, you see those tiny specks, those are people, it was a very large building. It was a very impressive building. We talked about this last week as we approached Zachariah the priest. And when you arrived there every year, the priests would have you come as a family and you would bring a lamb and you would sacrifice the lamb. But there were a lot of rules that were made up about these lambs. For example, the rules that were made up in the Mishnah were things like it had to only be less than a year old, it had to be a male, it had to be of perfect, uh, without blemish or without spot, but also they had extra rules, rules like the lamb could only have been born or raised within a five-mile radius of the temple. If the lamb was born and raised up in Galilee, it would not, it would not work. It needed to be born within a five-mile radius. And so Bethlehem had become, for over a thousand years, a place where lots of lambs were raised. In fact, this is where David, the shepherd boy who became king, the one who killed the giant, this is where he used to raise lambs. And the priesthood was so very controlling as it related to what type of lambs could be sacrificed, they would only allow those that they could have direct oversight constantly. You not only had governmental control, you had strict religious control. And so when you came from Galilee or when you came from Syria or if you came up from Alexandria, Egypt as an, as a worshiper of God, you would bring your lamb. The priest would say, where was this lamb raised? Well, it was raised down in Alexandria, Egypt. No, good. Get rid of it. You have to buy one of our lambs. They would jack up the price on people. And then they would take a lamb that was raised somewhere within five-mile radius, most likely near Bethlehem, they would offer that lamb. Josephus, the historian, tells us that every year during this period, they had not thousands of lambs that were slain. During Passover, they would not sacrifice tens of thousands. They would sacrifice hundreds of thousands. The number given historically is 260,000 lambs every Passover would be sacrificed. That's a quarter of a million lambs. So now it's no surprise to us that five miles outside of Jerusalem is a little town called Bethlehem that is known for birthing and raising lambs for the purpose of sacrifice. So, God shows up to these shepherds, the Bible says, behold, verse 9, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before these shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about these shepherds, and they were greatly afraid. Every time you see an angel, it seems that people are afraid. Do you have a friend? Do you have a friend like this? Anybody have a friend that likes to scare you? They think it's funny? How many of you have somebody in your family, they just love to jump out and scare? How many of you know somebody like this? I've got somebody like this, he goes to our church, his name is Bobby Moores, and every time I'm I'm sitting in a Starbucks, his favorite thing is to come around and be like, scare me. I hate that man. I do not like him. You feel the same way, some of you. He he scares me. I don't think, I don't know. How many of you know somebody that thinks this is funny? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the angels like doing this to people. I don't know. I don't think that's true. But nonetheless, this is what's going on. And the Bible says when the angel shows up, the glory of God shines around them. Now, don't skip by that quickly because the glory of God is significant in the Bible. The glory of God is referred to in the Old Testament as the Shekinah glory. Do you remember when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? There went before them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it rested over the temple of God or the tabernacle. It was referred to as the Shekinah glory, the glory of God's presence in a cloud form. The Bible says that way back during the time of the Old Testament, they would see that physical representation hovering over the temple of God. And when the Bible tells us that the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, that the glory of God had gone away. The Shekinah had departed. It had become Ichabod. The glory had departed from Israel. For the first time, In almost 600 years, the Bible says the glory, the Shekinah, had returned to Israel. The angel sings, the Bible tells us, in verse number 10. And the angel said unto them, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. Great joy which shall be to all people, for there is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And and, and this is how you'll find him. This will be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Again, more on that next week, verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Peace on earth. Much is made of peace on earth during Christmas season. In fact, even historically, you can find where armies are fighting one another, and they will pause for the Christmas Eve and the Christmas Day and stop fighting each other because of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And all of that is beautiful, but in reality, the essence of peace on earth is the idea that now on earth, the angel is saying, the person of peace is now on earth. The prince of peace has arrived. You see, the angels knew what humans often forget, and that is mankind is at war with God, though God is not at war with man. Every time mankind breaks God's commandments, every time mankind sins against God, we are declaring war against God. It wasn't just Adam and Eve, it was you and me. We all have sinned against God. Or am I alone? Well, the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it is is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not one who is perfect. All of us have sinned. If you're here today, you say, Josh, you're not the only one. I'm a sinner too. Would you say amen? Amen? See, we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. And in doing so, you have to understand how God views it. God views your sin as a act of declarative war against him and his kingdom. And so mankind has been at war against God. We've hurt one another. We harm one another. We worship demons. We worship false gods. We put other things in front of God. We elevate our preferences and we elevate our possessions above God himself. And every time we do this, God looks down and he is wounded by our transgressions. He is scourged by our iniquity. And so God in heaven is at war with, man man on earth is at war with God. And God must judge the sin of mankind. And so there is this division that you see from Genesis all the way through Malachi of the Old Testament of this division and war between mankind and God. And God in heaven, the Bible says, could destroy us, but he loves us instead. This is what Jesus explained to that very religious man, Nicodemus. He said, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. So Jesus Christ comes as the person of peace to bridge the gap between mankind and God his father and bring peace on earth. He is the prince of peace. The word peace in Hebrew, does anybody know it? Say it if you know it. Shalom. Shalom. Say it with me. Shalom. See, you know Hebrew. Say it again, shalom. Shalom. Did you know the word shalom means peace? But it also means, it means whole. It means complete. You see this throughout the scripture and throughout Hebrew literature, but for example, in Joshua chapter 8 verse 31, you'll see that Joshua is referring to a stone that is not broken, but a stone that is whole. It is a shalom stone. It is a whole stone. When the Bible says peace came on earth when Jesus Christ came, he is coming to make the world whole again. You look around the world and you say, the world is broken. You're not wrong. The world is broken. It was Jesus Christ, peace on earth, who came to make it whole once again. He came to bring peace on earth so that we once again would be one family united in one kingdom. That was his plan. But what happened? The only way he could save mankind was to die for mankind. And as the Lamb of God... He was slain to pay for the sins of mankind and bring us together. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then in verse 15 through 17, look at what it says in verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away. Into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and and see this thing that had come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And when they came with haste, that is, as soon as they learned, they quickly ran after God and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. They found him. They found him. Listen now. Listen. They sought for God. And they found him. If you're seeking for God here today, friend, I've got a message for you. He wants to find you. So what makes Jesus so special? Three words that I want you to see from this and then we'll get out of here. You want the three words? If you do, say amen. Amen. Here they are, three words. Number one, accessible, relatable, and Emmanuel. Say accessible. What makes Jesus so special is that he is so accessible. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. How many of you pray for me? Say amen. How many of you just lied? You just said amen because I told you to. Amen, all right? <laughs> I do need you to pray for me because my wife has been having me watch a, a, a Netflix show with her called The Crown. Yeah, I, did somebody clap? It was a woman. watching The Crown uh, with my wife. Now, I'd have to watch every episode. In fact, she doesn't let me watch every episode. She's like, no, you don't want to watch that one. But there are other episodes, she's like, oh, you got to watch this. And she had me watch an episode where um, Queen Elizabeth, as a young woman in the 1950s, was changing the monarchy. I mean, changing it. And one of the dramatic changes that she made is that as queen, she needed to be more accessible to the people. So she started inviting common people to come and talk with her like commoners, like merchants, and business owners, and boxers. And it's a really great episode because all of the, all of the, all of the other royals are like, oh my goodness, you're going to touch the common folk. <laughs> <laughs> and Elizabeth, which by the way, is an American, all of this is like, okay, I know, I just, I can't handle this, right? But Elizabeth goes out of her way as the monarch of the British Empire, 70 years ago, and begins talking to commoners, breaking new ground. But 2,000 years before she ever came, there was the king of kings who showed up in a barn and said, bring the shepherds in. He is accessible. I mean, you go ahead and try it. Try it. Go get an appointment with the queen. She meets with commoners now. Why don't you go? But I'm an American. Then go meet with the president. I'm serious. We're in a republic, supposedly, a democracy. Go meet with the president. Well, I mean, he's a very busy, important man. Then go meet with the governor, just the governor of your little state. Go set an appointment. I'll give you six months to try to get an appointment with the governor. Good luck. Not just a guy, go-, go, go meet your favorite celebrity. Go see how many hundred thousands of dollars it would be just to sit down for coffee with your favorite celebrity. And Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, wants to meet with you anytime you want. This is what makes him so special. He is accessible. And he's accessible to every single man, woman, and child in this room. My friend, number one, he is inviting you. Are you accessing him? Are you accessing him? Number one, he is accessible. You know what makes him great? Number two, he's relatable. I want you to say relatable. He is relatable. He is relatable. Why is he so relatable, Jesus? Here's why he's so relatable. Because he became a man. Theologians call it the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It literally means God became a man. God became a man is like saying a man became a dog. We're talking about completely two levels of strata. Or even worse, God man became a cat. Even No, I'm sorry, I apologize. I, you know I'm going to get emails for that one actually. So He became a man so that, according to the book of Hebrews, we would have a high priest who could empathize with our difficulties. Think about this. God became a man so that he could understand what it was to go through the junk that you go through. He wanted to know what it was to be hungry, so he fasted for 40 days. He wanted to know what it was to be tired, so he stayed up all night and prayed. He wanted to know what it was to be irritated, so he invited Peter to be his disciple. (laughs) Joke, it's a joke. Listen, Jesus knew what it was like to lose a father. Jesus knew what it was like to experience betrayal. Jesus knew what it was to be poor. He knew what it was to go to the market with his mother Mary and Mary say, no, we can't afford that, no, we can't afford that, no, we can't afford that. Jesus knew what that was like. Jesus knew what it was to be rejected by his own family because of his own faith. Jesus did. He became a man so he could relate with you on a personal level. Years ago, I had a very kind woman in the church. Um, she, she came to me and said, Pastor, could we meet after church? I said, sure, let's meet. She said, I have some, some child-raising advice I would like to give you. And I thought what many of you as parents thought, oh, this will be fun. And she sat down with me and it was. She shared her theories on child discipline. She shared with me her thoughts on children taking naps. She shared with me her thoughts on schedule and how to schedule the child, what diet the child should have, about overstimulation and how we care for the child. And at the end, she had many, many thoughts, many, many opinions. And at the end, she ended with, now, I know that I don't have any children myself. but this is what I would do if I could. It's difficult to trust the advice of somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. Listen to me, friend. The reason Jesus Christ became a man is so that he could understand what it is to live the life of a man. To live the life of a human being who went through temptation, who went through trials, who went through good moments, who went through bad moments, he understands what it is so that when Jesus says, love those who persecute you, you know that he knows what he's talking about. When Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you know that he knows what he's talking about. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you, you know that he knows what he's talking about. When Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll have to wear, your life is more than what you put in your stomach, your life is more than what you put on. You know that he knows what he's talking about. When Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will eventually be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's accessible, yes. He's inviting you. Are you accessing him? He's relatable. He's been there. The question is, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? I have two words and now the third. Three words that make Jesus so powerful, so amazing, so special. He's accessible, relatable, and lastly, he is Emmanuel. Say it with me. Emmanuel. See, religion says that God is above us. Nihilism says that God is against us. Atheism says God is beneath us. Pantheism says says God is around us. Narcissism says God is us. And Emmanuel says God is with us. God God came to be with human. Did you hear what... God came to be with us. If you're searching for something, friend, it might be like the shepherds, it might be time to find him. He came to be with us. I was putting Savannah in the car Years ago, now she's almost 16, and at the point she was probably about three to six months old, she was in one of those car seats. You know those car seats, the ones that you put them in, you lock them in, you you click. You know the click. And Heather would always say, "Make sure it clicks," and I'd click. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You the car seats? I hate car seats. We're out of the car seat phase. Thank God I threw those things. I burned them. I bur- I got burnt. I hate the car seats. They always smelled bad. You know what I mean? They smell bad. Because they leak, the kids, on everything. All sorts of things. And so you throw them away because otherwise your car forever smells the way they do. And I clicked her in. And, and the reason I was in charge of the kids, which rarely happened, is because Heather was inside the dentist office, and she had a few dental procedures that had to be done. So they were my kids. For, for more than 30 minutes, it was going to be a couple hours. So I, was, I had the kids. They were mine. She said, take care. Absolutely. I got it. Make sure. You, I'm going to click the thing. I'm going to click. So I took Savannah, and I clicked her in the seat. And when I did, I shut the door, and I turned around, and my two-and-a-half-year-old Jonathan was gone and when I say gone, he was gone, like he wasn't there. And the first thought I thought was, Heather will not like me now. <laughs> because 50% is not a good enough number. <laughs> when I come back and explain how many kids we have. And so I thought, okay, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Jonathan. And, and I thought, man, he's gone. How many of you have a two-year-old, three-year-old? And they are just fast, you know, like when they want to be They they want they're just gone. And so I shut the door and he was gone and I turned around and he wasn't there. I said, Jonathan. And now I was in I was in a bad situation because my one kid was in the car and my other kid was gone. And if I shut the car and left her, I get arrested. But if I let the other kid just go, I'll get arrested. And I was in a, you know, arrest if you do and arrest if you don't. You know what I mean? Some of you know what I, you know, you, some of you know exactly what I mean in that situation. And I wasn't sure what to do. And so I said, okay, I've got to keep an eye and I'm watching. I left the car door open a little and, I, and I'm looking, Jonathan! Jonathan! And then suddenly the fear went from losing my child to facing my wife <laughs> and then to what if I can't find him? and my heart began to beat, and my pulse began to race, and sweat began to pour down my brow, and trying to keep an eye on one car while searching for my other. Jonathan, Jonathan! And I ran down the aisle, and I saw him nowhere, and so I went another aisle over, and I went down. I couldn't see him at all. Jonathan, Jonathan! I went down a second aisle, and about seven or eight cars down, I turned the corner, and Jonathan was sitting on top of a yellow Corvette. He picked a good one, you know what I mean? He, you know, if he's gonna pick one, and he's patting it, he's like, "Look at the car!" (laughs) So immediately, I grabbed him and I took him off, you know, as quickly as I could. I left a note. I didn't leave a note. I did not leave a note. I did not leave a note. Grabbed my kid, threw him in the car. What are you doing? Have you ever had that feeling of losing? And you're searching, you're searching, you're searching, you're searching. Where is he? Where is he? Where is it? Where is it? Where is she? Where is she? Where? 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 This is the feeling that the shepherds had while looking for the little lamb, Jesus Christ. Where is he? Where is he? This will be a sign unto you, swaddling clothes, manger, and they find him. And we're to relate with the shepherd. Later on in the book of Luke, we're going to get there as we study. Jesus doesn't want you to um, relate with the shepherd. He tells another story, but this time the shepherd has lost a little sheep. And the shepherd goes out looking for the lost sheep, and everywhere he looks, he doesn't see it. Then finally, he finds the lost lamb. And while the lost lamb has probably just suddenly realized that he was lost and he's looking around scared, trying to search for the shepherd, the shepherd comes and finds the lost sheep and brings the lost sheep back home. Friend, you and I are that lost sheep. The shepherd has been searching for you, and maybe for some of you just now, you're waking up to the realization that you're lost, and so because you're lost, you're like that lost lamb, and you're searching, you're wondering, where's the shepherd? Where's the shepherd? And Jesus says, I am Emmanuel. I'm with you. All you need to do is come and take hold of Jesus Christ. He is here so you can be saved. This is what makes him so special. He's accessible, you can have him. He's relatable, he knows what your life is. And he's Emmanuel, he's just waiting for you to take him. Now that you have found him, would you receive him as your savior? If you've never done so, let's do that right now. Let's pray, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth that's found in this passage, that you are among us and you desire to have us. And so my prayer is for my lost sheep, friends. Those who even now, maybe in the last week, maybe the last month, maybe even the last year, they've awakened to the reality that they are lost and they've been searching for love, joy, peace, patience. They've been looking for something and suddenly they realize they've been looking for you. I pray right now, God, you would find them and you would capture their heart, you would save them. Thank you for waking them up to truth. Now I pray they would put their faith in you. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you have never as a lost sheep repented of your sin and received Jesus as your savior, would you do so right now? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, would you call upon Jesus and ask him to save you? Just pray this to God, God in heaven, I admit that I'm a lost sheep. I've sinned against you. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I'm asking you to save me now. Shepherd, come get me, find me and save me. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, friend, we believe that if you prayed to receive Christ, you were born again. And in a moment, we're gonna invite you to speak with somebody about that decision. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance you've given us to study it. Bless us now as we leave this place with a passion to seek out the one who came to save us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If God has used this message to impact your life, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to connectdesk at southernhillslv.com. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at SouthernHillsLV.com slash give. We are always encouraged to hear how God is using this church in Las Vegas to reach God's people around the world.